Welcome to the 10th episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics come together uh, in our self-isolating pajamas and talk about particular keywords in this historical moment. The keyword for today is risk, and we're joined by Craig Thompson as our ninth guest and in this wonderful moment, our 10th episode. So, Alan, would you like to introduce Craig? Yes, indeed. Craig Thompson is professor at the Wisconsin School of Business at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is very much a towering figure uh, over the field of consumer research. In fact, the co-father of the field of consumer culture theory following a piece that he wrote with Eric Arnold in 2005. And it's our pleasure to have you with us today, Craig. Hi, Alan. Great to be here. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. So the term that we're going to discuss today, or the keyword, is that of risk. Uh, clearly, risk is everywhere today. But how would you begin to articulate uh, a concept of risk, Craig? Well, sort of in, in, in preparing for this, you suggested that we sort of focus on the work of Ulrich Beck, who had been writing about risk society and uh, the, the kind of transformations in, in the social order that he saw uh, emanating from the the recognition of risk society and what he later called world risk society. And I think Beck's work is is a good place to sort of focus this discussion uh, because he was a, a very eclectic theorist. He drew from lots of different sources. Uh, he certainly uh, was a, a colleague and collaborator of Anthony Giddens, drew a lot of inspiration from systems theory, uh, the work of Nicholas Luhmann, and uh, you know, took into account you know Mary Douglas and other people's accounts of risk. So I think sort of using Beck as um, an orienting framework, and we can talk as we go on about some limitations and maybe some contradictions and other issues in his framework. As Beck's ideas developed and he tried to get more systematic in his account of risk, he drew a distinction between three sources of insecurity. Right. And that's really ultimately what risks become. They become sources of insecurity uh, that create an impetus for people to say and societies to say, how do we cope with this sense of insecurity and how much insecurity can we tolerate? And so Beck suggested that in sort of the pre-modern era, people lived in a world of threats, you know, sort of um, uh, acts of God as they would have been seen, massive storms, natural disasters, even epidemics like the plague, which were sort of not well understood in terms of where they came from, how they could be treated. People just seemed to be at the, the mercy of these sort of uncontrollable forces. Beck argued that as we moved into the age of modernity and we started to have more faith in the power of science and science and technology was able to exert more control over different kinds of risk and threats. We shifted from this world of threats into this idea of risk, which were more manageable, calculable. He sort of talks about these risks are the kinds of things that these modern versions of risk are what insurance uh, companies do and actuaries do, where they basically can calculate, okay, What's the cost-benefit trade-off? You know, how much are we going to spend to uh, ensure that uh, this system will be fail-proof versus being willing to accept some level of risk and failure for the cost-benefits, right? Those kinds of trade-offs that we make. 
So it was very much kind of technocratic. Uh, and as Beck tells the story, people put a lot of faith in the experts who were in charge of kind of managing the risk and making sure that our bridges won't collapse, our airplanes won't fall out of the sky, our food won't be contaminated. What he suggests as we've moved into this era of late modernity, and this is where his collaboration with Giddens became much more manifest, that we've shifted into this area of what he came to refer to as manufactured uncertainties, or what I would think might even be a more clear-cut term of systemic risk, right? And systemic risk are they're kind of produced within the system. They're the realm of these unintended consequences. And there's the awareness that suddenly these risks are not bounded. They're completely delocalized. They're global. They're very, very difficult to uh, calculate because of all of sort of the downstream ramifications and reverberations that come with them. And Beck's classic example of this, he was talking about uh, climate change. I think that was his quintessential example of kind of global risk society that you know everybody is impacted by climate change. Uh, it's very challenging to understand everybody, since everybody's affected uh, by it, and it's so kind of complex, uh, it's hard to actually calculate the risk of it because you don't know what kind of tipping points and cascade effects uh, will happen. And so therefore, the, the, the management of that risk becomes very, very challenging. And again, it becomes difficult to say who's truly responsible for managing these risks and who's going to make decisions about how these risks will be distributed. His argument was in, the, in, in sort of the classic modern sense, we believe that the experts could sort of fairly distribute risk, right? Uh, he suggests in this new era, this era of manufactured uncertainties, where we're always aware that catastrophe lurks around the corner, it's not clear at all who is in charge of managing these risks. And he suggests that that creates sort of distrust in the experts who were formally once taken as authorities. And also will lead people to start looking beyond nation state boundaries, recognizing that governments are too small and uh, don't have the necessary resources to effectively manage these risks, which know no borders. And I think, you know, we, it's sort of obviously the event that is, uh, that we're all facing right now with the corona outbreak, you can start to see how so many of Beck's basic ideas, you know, kind of play out. This virus knows no boundaries. Uh, no one government can kind of manage it on itself. It's going to take kind of global cooperation. And it's really anybody's guess to some extent, like what are the risks involved? Like how far will this go? If we were to suspend social distancing, what happens? How can you manage it? There's so many, many unknowns right there, which makes it hard to create the kind of traditional uh, cost benefit calculations that Beck argues would have happened in the kind of the, the modern era of risk management. And then last but not least, and this is something that in my own work, I've put a lot more emphasis on than I think Beck did, although I drew some inspiration from Beck, is this idea of the fact that, let me, let me back up a second, because part of Beck's argument is that people would have sort of less faith in the experts, right? And he saw that as giving rise to these sub-political movements where people will come together and say, we want a place at the table. Risks today are not just technical problems. 
they are social and moral problems. And so we have a right to talk about the broader societal implications of these risk management decisions that are being made, right? So he saw a world where people would not sort of completely discount the experts and their technical knowledge and their assessments, because as he points out, something like climate change, for most people, you don't directly experience it, right? You have to rely on technical analysis to actually track and trend how climate change is happening. So he assumed that people would still, in some sense, maintain a certain degree of faith in the experts and the technocrats, but not be willing to delegate all the decision-making authority to them. But what we've seen, of course, is that there are segments of the population who completely discount the experts. And we're seeing that very much in the, in the case of coronavirus, where some of the pushback and some of the problems in managing this threat, this imminent catastrophe, is that there's large pockets of, of the population across the globe who don't believe the arguments uh, from the experts and want to say, oh, I know, you know, I read on the web that this is really just a cold or that you can treat it by taking this miracle cure or whatever, or this is all a plot to bring down in the United States, the big narrative. This is all a plot to destabilize the, con the economy so that Trump won't be reelected. And they see this as a personal attack on the Trump administration. Climate change denial hinges on the same very idea of discrediting the experts. So, you know, global warming isn't really real. It's just a way for climate scientists to earn funds or maybe some nefarious world order to take freedoms away from people. And so you see this intersection of what, from an academic standpoint, we might call conspiracy theories, but they really are an expression of this more profound and in some sense perverse distrust of scientific expertise. So that's kind of my opening salvo on this, uh, that distinction between threats, risk, and manufactured uncertainties, and the tenuous relationship it creates between ordinary people and the experts who they would, you know, we would expect us to look at for guidance and how to negotiate our way through these kinds of systemic risk. I'm remembering a particularly memorable line in the Risk Society where he claimed that Today, the science of risk is in a polygamous marriage with business and politics and others. In that regard, I mean, we can really see this struggle for acceptance with these competing rationality claims. Is this something that you think is quite a dangerous scenario? You know, one thing I, I, I like about Beck's work, and this came a bit later in his writings when he moved and, taught and started to link World Risk Society with this broader condition, which he called reflexive modernization. And it's worth noting that when he made a very clear distinction because he was working on, he actually came up with this concept in a collaboration with Anthony Giddens. And he wanted to make it very clear that when he used the word reflexive, he did not mean it in the sense of reflective, right? You know, people reflecting on the conditions of the world and how they could be changed and kind of treating as a philosophical problem. He meant it much more in a reflex manner right? That there is an emergency, there's a crisis, and we have to respond quickly uh, with decisions being made under very uncertain and precarious conditions. And so his argument is this new political world is always going to be one of an ad hocracy. We're always sort of trying to solve one problem, and then we have to deal with the consequences of that because we actually aren't able to see that far into the future. 
So with that, I think, you know, we're sort of seeing a lot of this sort of ad hocery, right, in the context of how we're going to manage a crisis like the coronavirus. So there's that element of, of Beck's politics that I think are, are very relevant here. But when there's all these ad hoc decisions, it also then allows more actors to make a claim about this is how it should be done or this is how it should be done and debate over different courses of action where it's often there is no kind of real clear-cut criteria for adjudicating between a better course of action or a lesser course of action. And so, you know, your question is, is this dangerous? It actually, I, I, it's almost like it's inevitable now. And so the question becomes, how do we cope and manage with those inevitabilities, right? And so, you know, in climate change, we've seen how the forces of climate change denial have been able to sort of disrupt the dialogue and really kind of create a kind of uh, almost by proxy apathy as we you know, don't do anything uh, and haven't done anything in a, in a, in a kind of a, a globally scaled effort to combat the problems of climate change. I think the coronavirus, because it is a, in some sense, a more immediate crisis is sort of forcing the issue. And we're clearly having this debate between sort of, you know, the World Health Association and different sort of health associations on a nation by nation basis here in the United States. It's the, um, uh, the Center for Disease Control who are sort of our point people for it and their experts versus the self-anointed experts, you know, uh, uh, television celebrity doctors, uh, conspiracy theorists who are on the webs. And um, you're seeing this kind of conflict, but I think what you're seeing is a kind of an emerging consensus around expertise. Uh, so I, I guess I'm sort of talking in circles here, but it's sort of like we have to discover a solution to this uncertainty about who to believe, which is now very much a part of our common reflexive modernist age. It's a choice of who to believe. And so whose narratives are going to be able to mobilize people in order to believe one source or another. And I don't think there's a theoretical answer to that question. Uh, I think from our perspective, looking at it as analysts and people who study the sociology of consumer culture, uh, it becomes a question of trying to understand which make for more effective mobilizing narratives versus others, because it's kind of the condition we live in now. Now, one thing that Beck spoke of was what he called a scientized consciousness or an everyday consciousness of risks. Up to now, you've been talking about the experience of risk as something which is borne by policymakers and elites. But what about at the everyday, we might even call it consumer society of a risk society? You know, I think one of the things about Beck's framework that I like is everything is a sort of a dialectic. And so even though my, my prior comments did seem to be, I guess, pitched more at the level of sort of higher level policymakers and those with administrative control, their ability to influence and shape policy becomes contingent to some extent on the uh, ability to kind of uh, mobilize belief and support in the broader population. Uh, along with this sort of the scientist, scientization mindset, and the idea that risk society is one where ordinary people are always living in kind of the uh, anticipation of a catastrophe, right? I know you guys had Nora Campbell on for a, uh, a one, uh, one podcast, 
And I think her work on preppers is a good example of one kind of response to this, of people who sort of devote their lives, right, to prepping for this inevitable catastrophe. And this kind of interesting sort of sense of we're kind of on our own. Uh, Beck also used the term that uh, reflexive modernization creates a kind of a tragic individualization. As people feel sort of deterritorialized, detraditionalized, they've lost faith in the sort of the, the experts, the authority, and feel like, you know, survival ultimately is going to come down upon myself. How do people cope with this tragic individualization? And I think the, the preppers movement, the survivalist movement, is one example of that, albeit perhaps a, a, a more extreme one. Uh, some of the hoarding behaviors that got so much criticism when the when the pandemic first hit, you know, people running to the stores and stocking up on food and stocking up on toilet papers, which seemed to be irrational, actually starts to look more rational if people are reeling in the sense that at the end of the day, I'm kind of going to have to cope with the and, and face these catastrophic circumstances very much on my own because I can't count on some grander authority saving me. Uh, so you've got this sort of tragic individualization. And so I think a lot of the kinds of things that this, – this is an argument I'm, I put out. I'm working with a grad student, Anil Isisog, and we're trying to relook uh, look at a lot of consumption practices that have normally been analyzed as a case of neoliberal responsibilization, like different kinds of wellness-oriented self-care practices. And the argument is, oh, we'll see – that's neoliberalism. People are having to take responsibility for their health rather than mobilizing for universal health care. That's kind of the narrative there. And what we're trying to argue is that people have conflated individual actions, anything that has an individual motif to it. People say, oh, that's neoliberalism. But neoliberalism is very much about optimizing the self, right? If you follow the market signals, you can optimize your human capital to basically get the best return on your investments in yourself. That's the neoliberal argument. But this reflexive modernist argument, this form of tragic individualization, is about how can I protect myself from a catastrophe when I know the experts may not have the answer, right? Maybe these things are too big. Maybe global warming has already passed all the tipping points and there's really nothing I can, you know, that the experts are going to be able to do to save us. So how do I insulate myself from that? What do I have to do in order to protect myself from, you know, this, this pandemic uh, that we're on? So I think there is this element of tragic individualization. Um, and it's interesting, one of the contexts we're looking at right now is CrossFit. And uh, Anil and I have been tracking some of the a lot of discussion on CrossFit uh, chat boards, Reddit boards, uh, social media platforms. And there's a constant uh, discussion among CrossFitters about basically saying we're going to be fine because through our CrossFit exercise, we've developed such a robust immune system, right, that we don't have to actually worry about, you know, the coronavirus. Now, obviously, an epidemiologist, a medical professional would look at that and say, that's insane, right? The coronavirus, you know, can attack young, healthy people just as well and all these kinds of things. You know, fitness is not going to protect you from this specific virus, right? But in the age of tragic individualization, facing these kinds of things, people kind of try to grab onto something uh, as a way of kind of coping with 
this profound sense of insecurity, even if it can lead to sort of a, a counterproductive consequence, making these people perhaps feel overconfident uh, in their uh, in, uh, daily lives. By the way, how do you know uh, that somebody in the room is doing CrossFit? They'll tell you. Yeah, the first rule of CrossFit is you always talk about CrossFit. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Craig, here I would be interested in trying to draw a little bit of a theoretical connection to French theory, like Debord's Society of the Spectacle, now that we're talking about the consumption practices related to risky scenarios. Could we make a sort of radical conjecture and say that one thing that's very prevalent in our contemporary media atmosphere is the very consumption of these kind of risky scenarios themselves. Psychoanalysis would inform us that we need this instability, we need this potential for disaster just to just to make our libidinal juices run and create new ways of engaging with the word libidinally. Uh, I know Beck also talks about how mass media estranges and individualizes you even more. So have we could we maybe say that we've entered to a stage where in this, if you will, apathy or whatever, uh, we have actually become more and more dependent on these narratives just for the sake of creating more and more consumption? You can certainly say that. And that would be a very viable uh, interpretation of the current moment. And I think it was, if I want to just kind of bring this back to back as a point uh, of contrast, you're exactly right. Uh, and toward his later writings, when he was writing about this phenomenon of cosmopolitization, and he didn't mean that in terms of being urbane and sophisticated, but more this pervasive awareness of systemic interconnections, right, where we have to realize that we're in some sense all in this together. As he was writing on that, and he was writing that systemic risks are just really a function of the complex, interlinked, socio-technical, uh, ecological systems that organize the world economy. I think it, it dawned on me as I, was, as I was preparing for this that really a lot of what Beck is writing about was reconceptualizing risk as an assemblage, right? A complex assemblage that is constantly always plagued by betrayals and sources of instability and where there's these constant efforts to kind of restabilize the system, if not in total, at least in part. And so what you're saying, Joel, is a little bit of, isn't this almost like a discursive ideological system keeping people in this kind of constant state of perpetual insecurity and kind of flirting with a kind of Freudian death instinct so that they you know, constantly have this need for, I don't know, rejuvenation or something like that? Beck would say, and this is where there's this distinction between his, his kind of certain realism, he would say, no, the system itself is generating that. And these complex systems, and this is where you could almost say, in some respects, he aligns with the work of Latour, who he also cited from, doesn't respect human agency that much. Your account is putting too much focus on human actors. Human actors are embedded in the system, and we are ultimately having to respond to these creations, which we have manufactured, but we have lost control of them. And it's that sense of we make them, we lose control of them, and then we're always struggling to try to regain control, to put the proverbial genie back in the bottle. And in doing that, we're only generating new risk. And so it's that kind of constant churn, that kind of instability 
is what Beck saw as um, this kind of world risk society and the basic conditions of reflexive modernization. Yeah, so uh, to kind of follow that up, critics of Beck have written that his view of mass media was very unidirectional, that mass media produces these symbols and then sort of feeds them to people. When we think of social media today, when we think about internet communications, they are increasingly algorithmically guided. And uh, exactly as you say, it's very hard to locate any locus of control on these mediums anymore. So could this be sort of a echo of a Beckian idea where it's no longer so much, even though arguably he had this idea that mass media is rather unidirectional, what is actually happening is this complex deterritorialization of risks that just intensifies through this electronic media and there is no longer any agentic control behind it. We become a society that maybe consumes it and produces it and it's sort of lost its uh, place of any sort of authority. Yes, yes, I, I would agree with that. And I think it actually, so it, it's funny you mention that because I just read an, an interview that Beck did uh, with a group of communication scholars. This interview was done 2012, 2013. So again, you know, very near the end of his life, uh, right at the time he was, uh, I guess he probably finished Cosmopolitan Visions. The book just hadn't come to press yet. And it was it was and he was asked by these uh, media scholars a lot of specific questions about his assessment or his views of how mass media fits into this kind of broader scheme. And he did talk about the power of these um, powerful visual images, which are disseminated through mass media as a way of mobilizing public opinion. And his example, because he'd gotten very interested in the war of terror as being a kind of response to world as, as a manifestation of world risk society, because it was sort of the anticipation of a pending catastrophe. That's how he kind of rolled that in uh, to his his theorization. And he used the example of how the image of the Twin Towers collapsing in New York mobilized public opinion in a way that justified and created this kind of broad base, at least for a while, of support for the war on terror. And the idea that uh, some risks are so, so dire, so morally reprehensible that they cannot be tolerated, right? And so even though his point was, even though the linkages, uh, for example, to Saddam Hussein and 9-11 were very, very tenuous, that wasn't what that war was really about. It was really an argument that it would be too unimaginably horrible and too much risk-oriented, too much of a threat of catastrophe for Saddam Hussein to acquire weapons of mass destruction. And so really it was just a subterfuge to sort of say that he was somehow implicated in 9-11, which was part of the original kind of narrative that the Bush administration gave. It was really more that pervasive sense that this is a threat that we must stop, right? And he suggested that that image was very much a part of it. And he suggested, though, to these media scholars that it would be possible for sub-political groups, like the Green Party or someone like that he had in mind, to mobilize these images for more progressive, more cosmopolitan transformations. And I just want to, I hope this doesn't sound too self-promoting, but the, the work I did with Ashley Humphreys uh, a few years back, we analyzed the uh, discourses around oil spill disasters, uh, the Exxon Valdez and the BP Gulf uh, disaster. 
I think part of our analysis showed that mass media actually does kind of operate under its own kind of mythic logic. And the demand for closure and the way the media covers these disasters actually serves to mask systemic risk. It actually reinforces faith that the system as a whole is secure by portraying these massive bank breakdowns not as a bellwether of future catastrophes, but as a moment when there was an inexplicable breakdown in an otherwise functioning system due to bad decisions or you know one faulty design that we can now kind of correct. And so my point is, what we showed in that, and we didn't make this link specifically in the paper, but that kind of thinking, oh, this is a well-functioning system, and we identified a weak point where people could make a decision, you know, the drunk captain that drives the, the Valdez into, you know, an iceberg or, um, you know, cost-cutting measures which lead to a bad, cheaply designed safety valve or what have you. We can correct those sorts of things. Beck would have argued that was the modern conception of risk, right, where risks were containable and manageable, and we had trust that the experts could make the necessary corrections in this kind of cost-benefit assessment calculation. But even in this world of manufactured uncertainties, where oil spill disasters are really kind of quite commonplace, when we highlight the most catastrophic of them, they can be treated as an anomaly in another well-functioning system, which actually serves to kind of perpetuate the status quo. And that's where I think uh, Beck, when I say I think he was overly optimistic and, and in some sense utopian in his account of how uh, these structures work or operate, to me that's a good example of that because it sort of shows that there is this kind of almost a Foucaultian dynamic or some of the dynamics that you mentioned, Joel, which tend to um, support the, the vested interests that are profiting and doing well from the current system. One very striking aspect of, of these times we live in is how we have populists uh, like Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, who are trying to dismantle the infrastructure which emerged post-Second World War, for the most part to try and mitigate risk. Uh, so I think of the European Union the World Health Organization now Donald Trump has withdrawn funding from, it seems to be this incredible willingness to destroy those pillars which uh, are, are supposed to be useful during times of crisis. Did Beck, was he able to anticipate this populist turn? So I think, um, and this, here I'm going to go beyond Beck a bit, but I think um, you have on the one side this kind of global capitalist logic, which we now sort of describe as neoliberalism or an actually existing neoliberalism, which is about dismantling any sort of vestige of a public realm and, you know, and privatizing everything except for the losses, as Naomi Klein has pointed out. And that what Beck would suggest is that's constantly butting up against these conditions of reflexive modernization and the fact that these manufactured uncertainties and the kinds of catastrophes that are imminent within them demand more collective action. They demand the creation of a broader social safety net, of a broader infrastructure to, uh, to, to help sort of mitigate the, the consequences 
of these systemic risk. And I think we're seeing that tension very much uh, at, at odds right now in the context of, of the coronavirus outbreak, where people are pointing out, you know, for example, in the U.S., why are our hospitals so overwhelmed? What's going on like in New York? Why is the death rate so high? Why are the hospitals so overwhelmed? And for the last 15 years, Andrew Cuomo, as the governor of New York, has actually been very much a part of this. A lot of public hospitals have been basically decommissioned and transformed into upscale housing developments because these public hospitals happen to be located in um, high-value real estate. So you've had this kind of privatization that's going on, and as you said, this dismantling of, of public services. And then when we face a moment of catastrophe, people suddenly say, what happened? Why weren't we more prepared for this? Why weren't we able to make more ventilators? Why wasn't there more spaces in the hospital uh, in the event of Katrina? Why wasn't the national uh, disaster system more prepared for these kinds of emergencies? But what gets tricky is when the disaster passes, I think Beck would have suggested that there would be a lasting memory of this. And people would say, you know, this neoliberal dismantling thing, it obviously doesn't work. We need to go back and rebuild and kind of move to a kind of a social democratic model, right? But somehow that doesn't seem to stick. And I, I was actually running through a little thought experiment. And let me just kind of run this by you real quick. If Hillary Clinton had been elected president versus Trump, all right? So, one of the first changes that would have happened is that the uh, Obama administration had actually created a pandemic response team that was part of our National Security Council. So the National Security Council in, in the higher in sort of in government in the US governmental circles was originally created to kind of manage and track the threat of terrorism, right? The Obama administration after the SARS outbreak and some of these other things basically said, look, in this world we now, we have to actually re regard these potentially uh, dangerous pandemics as another kind of threat to national security. So they created this sort of pandemic response council whose job was to constantly monitor things like these early signs of an outbreak, like what have happened in Wuhan, and create a quick response to this. This, of course, was constantly attacked by conservatives as, you know, a wasteful government program, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the first things that Trump did when he came into power was to basically dismantle the epidemic uh, uh, response team. OK, so that would not have happened under Clinton. So we would have had that team in place. We probably would have had better diplomatic relationships with China, because I don't think she would have managed this sort of trade war conflict in the way that Trump did and sort of stressed diplomatic relations. So there's very good, very good chance that in the early stages of the pandemic, if not when the first warning signs were uttered from the, the, the Chinese officials to the World Health Association, certainly in the early steps when other countries like Italy and Spain started to show these crisis moments, the Clinton administration would have pushed very, very quickly for a much more dramatic response to the, to, to the crisis, encouraging states to engage in social distancing, using whatever federal power they had uh, that they could use to impose these kinds of sanctions, mobilizing efforts to create increase hospital capacity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When this happened, of course, you know that conservative media would have suddenly been up in arms about 
this is another kind of effort from the Clinton administration to create a crisis in order to enhance their own election chances. Uh, It was another opportunity to impose the nanny state, some sort of tyrannical anti-free market regime and constrain Americans' freedom, which is always the discourse of conservative politics in the United States. And then interestingly, because those preventive measures may have in fact done the purpose, served the purpose of keeping the crisis from materializing in the United States, critics would then say, see, this was an overblown hype, right? Uh, this is just, this was no worse than the flu, no worse than a common cold. Uh, and, and this would have led to a kind of a political backlash against uh, the Clinton administration. Part of what drove my thought scenario on this is we can think about if you guys, you guys, I think are old enough to remember this. You remember at the turn of the, of the millennium, the Y2K crisis that came upon us? There was all this concern that because of a coding error, computers across the globe were going to crash when they had to go to the 2000 and left the 1999 calendar. And tremendous amounts of human hours and resources were devoted uh, by IT professionals across the globe to create all kinds of patches and fixes so that the Y2K problem didn't materialize. And afterwards, everybody said, oh, what a bunch of hooey that was. There wasn't any Y2 problem, and it became kind of a joke uh, among sort of late-night comics. So when you prevent a risk from happening, right, it always leads to a sense that you know, you were hysterical. And in fact, one of the points Beck makes that is interesting, and I think it's, it's a useful one to think about, that in the age of reflexive uh, modernization, the line between hysteria and risk, hysteria and prepara- preparation, it, be- it becomes very, very hard to uh, distinguish. So I'm going to go back to Nora Campbell's work. You know, people always used to point to these preppers and say, you know, what a bunch of morons, what a bunch of idiots, what a bunch of paranoid recluses. In the age of of the coronavirus outbreak and the uncertainties of how long the shutdown could last and what the ramifications of it, all of a sudden preppers look pretty smart. They actually were prepared for this pending disaster. So very quickly they went from being hysterics to being rational actors. And so these are the kinds of uncertainties that you deal with with systemic risk. And part of the problem is there's not a lot of political payoff for preventing a crisis. You actually get more political payoff for seemingly to manage the way, your way through the crisis, right, uh, which creates perverse political incentives in terms of how we cope with these kinds of situations. Kind of maybe going back a little bit again to the idea of consuming these risky scenarios, uh, what would Beck, to your understanding, say about ideas of embracing risk and death. So all these end-of-the-world scenarios pop up all over the place, and and they're very popular. People's desires get easily channeled towards those ends. So what would Beck's idea be about this allure of risk? I don't think the allure of risk would be part of this kind of reflexive modernist discourse. Uh, If anything, I think Beck would say that people might be looking for ways to cope and compensate for the um, pervasive sense of insecurity 
and precarity that these conditions create. But sort of the idea that there's this like flirtation with the death instinct that releases this very seductive libidinal energy would really not be a part of Beck's vernacular. It's, it's worth thinking, I think what, what Beck gives us, if we step away and say, let's not look at Beck as a kind of an omnipotent description of how things are, but rather an interpretive perspective on how things might be, right? So for example, uh, a consumption activity that's kind of in the model of what you're talking about, Joel, is the kind of thing that David Le Breton uh, always talks about in his analysis, he's an anthropologist, his analysis of sort of uh, extreme endeavors where people literally put their bodies and lives on the line to engage in these kinds of high-risk consumption activities. Rebecca Scott, in her work on the um, Tough Mudder competitions, drew a lot of inspiration uh, from Le Breton. And it's this idea that you feel most alive right? When you face death, when you put your, when you put your life at risk, that's when life has its most value. So that's kind of Le Perton's notion that we get this kind of mystical spiritual awareness that we can't get in the sanitized, safe, sterile realm of everyday life. So you see, look, that argument is fundamentally based on the assumption that people assume that their everyday lives are risk-free and comfortable and boring and routinized and McDonaldized. And so we have to find risk outside. Beck wants to suggest that we're actually living, if not in a constant state of terror, a constant state of precarity. And so what we're struggling to do is to come to terms with this tragic individualization. And so that means consumption becomes a much more of a compensatory uh, kind of activity. And we suggested that if you apply this to these kinds of extreme sports activities, whether it's the Tough Mudder or CrossFit, which curiously kind of brags about the fact that, you know, you actually can die from CrossFit. You can get injured. It's not so much a celebration of the death instinct so much as we want to argue, myself and my colleague Anil said, that it's almost like an immune response. By doing these things, you make yourself tougher, more robust, so that you're better able to deal with whatever precarious circumstances come your way. So it's not a flirtation of the death instinct. It's much more a kind of a survivalist mindset. One thing that uh, that Beck seems to key, be keen on stating is the idea how these risks are, for the lack of a better word, rather invisible these days. It's hard to track what the risk is. The yes. virus is so small, you don't see it. Or these other structural uh, movements are so broad and so dispersed globally that it's impossible to recognize where they're coming from and how they are exactly assaulting you in various ways. So thus, we have to talk about symbols. How are these risks then symbolized, for example, through mass media? So uh, I'm reminded by the human geographer, Eric Swingedow, who famously, at least for me, in one of his uh, audio lectures said that we sociologists are completely useless because we can never predict when a symbol emerges. And with that, he meant that we can have all the statistical models we want, but we have no idea of saying when a Greta Thunberg emerges or when Arab Spring sort of symbolically kicks into gear. So is there something that we should also consider from Beck from the perspective of how are these symbols then, how do these symbols get the tipping point in culture through these uh, ways of communicating in social media or through mass media in general? What do we need in the face of these invisible risks 
for them to actually emerge as a symbolic thing that we can then somehow articulate and consider. Yeah, I mean that's that's a very I think it's it's a fascinating question and it's it's obviously a complicated one. And I think it, it again it highlights quite nicely some limitations. And I, I hesitate to say this because we're talking about such an influential theorist, but almost a certain level of naivete in some aspects of uh, Beck's framework. And it's a naivete that comes from his conscious choice to be very optimistic about the future for political action and his kind of own sort of political affinities, which were very much aligned with the German Green Party. And so I think Beck would have said, aha, yes, a Greta Thornburg, she's the symbol who's going to, you know, allow everybody to kind of mobilize around because she's the clear articulation of the ultimate threat, the imminent threat of global, uh, of global warming, uh, climate change, the threat to the future generations and pointing to us and saying, you adults haven't taken responsibility. So what are you going to do? What he underestimated is how that symbol itself would become contested and, and put in a framework of competing and disparaging symbols as people wanted to attack the authenticity and credibility of Greta Thornburg or recontextualize her, re-territorialize her as a face of naivete, the face of totalitarianism, the face of a kind of anti-democratic freedom, uh, this neoliberal idea, which has gotten coupled with people's notions of democracy. So all of these symbols are always contested, which is why I think the this kind of idealized cosmopolitan politics that Beck envisioned happening seems so unlikely to actually uh, arise. But you know, on, on your point, Joel, about the fact that these threats are, are invisible, that's a contradiction that another contradiction that that Beck didn't fully come to terms with, because many of these risks, right, we have to rely on science and scientific instrumentation and analysis to actually know they're there, right? Whether it's the effects of climate change or a sort of an epidemiological outbreak. We only know that coronavirus exists because we have scientists who say, We've identified the strain of it. These deaths are due to coronavirus. This is what the curve would look like. This is why we have to flatten it because it's, it's an abstract concept. We can't just based on experience see where the coronavirus is. So we only accept the existence of this risk and the threat it poses when we have faith in these experts, these scientific technologies. And at the same time, Reflexive modernization is also a context where people question the authority of these experts, and that becomes this kind of fundamental contradiction. Uh, there was a, a lot of discussion uh, here uh, on social media in the U.S. yesterday because the state of Michigan, uh, they have a Democratic woman governor, and she, of course, has put in place – she was a little late to the game, but she's put in place a very uh, sort of restrictive – lockdown on the state with some very strong social distancing measures. And there was a protest on the Capitol among a lot of gun-toting, Confederate flag-waving, Trump-type supporters on the steps. And, you know, they, of course, had all their guns with them as this symbol of kind of conservative freedom. And, of course, the jokes were, oh, these people actually thought they were protected from the virus because they had their guns with them and they'd be able to shoot it. Um, but, you know, there is that kind of sense that they were there basically saying, 
we don't believe the experts, right? Uh, and so, and, but this is just a fragment, right? You know, most people are believing the experts. They're following these social distancing measures, but you've got this segment of recalcitrant sort of rebels who are out there saying, we don't believe these experts. And now they themselves have become a symbol like a Greta Thornburg. And they can either, you know, continue to serve as a rallying call, a rallying point for conservative forces who, you know, don't want to continue with these measures, or they can become kind of a meme and a joke among those who basically say, come on, listen to the scientists. These people are nuts. And it's going to be an interesting decision in terms of as the economic ramifications of this shutdown sort of go on, how those kinds of contentious symbols will be interpreted. Will it become, I mean, right now we look and say, oh, it's very sort of callous and almost diabolical when you hear certain kind of conservative politicians saying, well, you know, we may have to sacrifice old people to restart the economy, right? But in six months, let's say, if we're still in the shutdown and we have these sort of, you know, increasingly skyrocketing unemployment numbers, maybe more and more people might start to say, you know what? Grandma may have to go. And what seems like a dialogue, a discourse, which is still sort of off the charts, right? So there's a segment of people who believe it, but it's a minority opinion. It could tip to become a majority opinion. And I think what Beck wanted to believe was that these minority opinions that will tip to become majority opinions are always those that are going to be related to this kind of cosmopolitan politics about kind of making a fair, more just world. But sometimes these minority opinions can be quite reactionary, uh, as we've seen in the U.S. or we've seen with Brexit uh, as another example of that. Uh, And it's uncertain when we face a catastrophe like this, which way it will tip and which symbols will come to the fore. I guess my final thoughts, just as I'm reflecting on on the conversation, is as as both of you know, at heart, I'm a Foucaultian. And so there's a certain pessimism uh, in my outlook. And I think, you know, I kind of find myself constantly opposing the optimism that Beck had with a more kind of pessimistic view that power structures are much more robust than perhaps Beck had suggested. And that when these networks get destabilized, it doesn't necessarily open the door up for a kind of progressive transformation, uh, which is what I think he envisioned. But at the same time, I think we shouldn't become bound in that pessimistic view. There's part of me that actually wants to believe uh, that Beck is correct and that there is a potential, for example, from this pandemic for people to take a much more critical, reflexive view on um, the effects of neoliberalism and the dismantling of social safety nets. There was a lot of hope, I think, after the 2008 meltdown that, in fact, there would be massive reforms in, you know, the banking systems and that we would wind up with more kind of democratic structures in place to make sure that, you know, we would history wouldn't repeat itself and that ordinary working people wouldn't have to carry the brunt of these bad decisions made by the one percent on their backs. As we saw You know, there were some initial flurries of reform. And then over time, that impetus, that kind of Occupy Wall Street mindset sort of dissipated. And we wound up to something that looked very much like the status quo. The network kind of reconfigured itself. 
with coronavirus, I think we're facing something that's not only threatening the financial markets and the economic systems, but the public health infrastructure, the whole social safety net, the idea of, you know, at least in the United States where we don't have universal health care, the question about this sort of inherent coupling of employment with um, within health insurance. Uh, and certainly I think in the UK, you know, the National Health Service has kind of been under attack. And I think this pandemic has led to a rethinking and questioning about, you know, the value of those kinds of public services and how much resources we want to invest in revitalizing them and making them stronger. And so we're having that conversation right now. And I guess we can only hope that the right symbols and discourses will arise that this time around, maybe this more cosmopolitan idea, this more progressive account of, of social change may have a more lasting effect. What could we do to kind of make that happen? What we could do as academics to make a positive change in this direction? Yeah, you're kind of uh, sharing my position here as uh, somebody inspired by what sometimes they're referred to as dark Deleuzean things. I'm always perversely looking for the libidinal enjoyments having to do with oppression and cruelty and injustice. So it's a kind of a thing that I would like to remain more optimistic as well. But uh, it's a kind of a position where you have to remind yourself of the optimism all the time to let it uh, manifest again. To answer your question, it's hard for me to say uh, really what we are supposed to do, especially if we you know, have this sort of pessimistic mindset. Are we supposed to somehow reinvigorate optimism, even if so many things around us point towards the opposite? Like you just said, the idea that, yeah, we're, we're having these system shocks, and still what seems to happen is that the certain kind of societal structures that we don't necessarily agree with, they just seem to, you know, like you said, the network uh, rebuilds itself. And we get back to the same situation and then we have a, another shock. As Alan, Alan always reminds us, like Zizek said, that uh, don't worry, there's a new crisis coming, coming along very soon. So it's hard to say what kind of position in a normative fashion one should, one should try to maintain. Alan, what about you? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, my own view is that the first place we should be uh, politically active is, is in our own university campuses to assert ourselves as defending academic values during a, a hostile time of neoliberalism to insist upon symbolic authority, uh, but also to be worthy of it as well, not to fall into these constant matrices uh, relating to league tables and everything else, to make sure that the university is a space which is credible, which deserves its credibility. Um, and also to... We're currently, British universities are currently in dispute over uh, pay, over pensions, over gender gaps, uh, lack of diversity in campuses. And it's important to win those struggles as well, to just assert ourselves as a profession. And, you know, in terms of your point about winning struggles, I want to come back to uh, a point I raised early in this conversation. And at the time, I didn't know why I was raising or where it would come to, but I can circle back to it now where Beck talks about 
in some sense, we now live in a world where all actions, all problem solving is very ad hoc. We're kind of just kind of solving one problem at a time as best we can under these conditions of uncertainty. And then we have to deal with whatever consequences and ramifications come from it. And that creates this kind of new problem uh, that we have to address. But if we link that up to sort of a Deleuzean idea and admittedly a kind of superficial account of Deleuze, it becomes a kind of a line of flight a line of escape, a way of thinking about something different. And so what I'm getting at is the power of a good example. So if you're able to kind of solve a problem and you say, look, you know, these are not insatiable issues that we're facing with. We can actually make some positive progress in, in this kind of piecemeal, case-by-case basis. I think Beck is suggesting that can be actually a more powerful narrative the power of a good example, a specific battle we've won, than the old kind of philosopher king of we're going to create the grand theory uh, and, or the idea that there'll be the grand kind of revolution that transforms everything at one time. We have to be content with like, okay, we've dealt with this one specific issue. You know, we've lowered the death rate of the coronavirus in this particular area. And then the power of that good example can then inspire others to try to find similar solutions and maybe transfer some of those techniques to create other good examples, sort of create this transformative reverberation across the network. So I think it kind of changes maybe the way we think about the world as academics, as sort of it's not about creating the grand Magna Carta that solves all the problems, but just being content with sort of addressing the micro problem, winning the small battle, and not worrying about the, the war so much. To address the point of lines of flight, I completely agree. But, and this might be a very good calling for an academic as well. A line of flight has to imagine an actual outside. So a line of flight, in the, in the way that I read Delors and Guattari, it's not just some different thought. It's actually a thought that is a an unthought, an impossible thought, a thought that goes beyond the ways of thinking that we're typically used to. So in our, in our situation, can we have thought, for example, that actually goes beyond the capitalist framework or the neoliberal framework? As Frederick Jameson already famously said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine any, any change in the social system that we have, we have ourselves constructed for ourselves. So if we can create openings rather than what you say, these kind of grand solutions, I'm all for it. But they are hard to create because they are so hard to imagine. Agreed. And, you know, it is sort of, I think, interesting that, um, it's funny you say that because as I was, you know, listening to sort of contemporary political debates that are going on, uh, and it really now has become sort of a case of sort of some version of democratic socialism, a kind of Scandinavian system versus the traditional kind of trickle-down neoliberal issues, uh, frameworks uh, that were kind of ping-ponging around, uh, it seems like, yeah, it would be, you know, a need for some alternative system that sort of supersedes uh, these ideas. And it gets tricky because I think if you go back to like Anthony Giddens' third way, I think he suggested, right, that that was a kind of an alternative system. But we now sort of see that that was just a kind of a, a repackaging of neoliberal ideas uh, that really just moved us closer to one side of that continuum than the other. Uh, 
But I think we live in a world kind of going back. Another influence on, on Beck, of course, was Bruno Latour and his argument that, you know, we live in a world of kind of constant hybrids uh, where it's not either or. And so I think these new ideas are not going to come uh, just from sort of ex nihilo. They're going to have to be created from some sort of a hybrid and then that hybrid generating some kind of unanticipated consequence, which moves and transforms that framework even further. So the line of flight, I think, is still going to, in a kind of a genealogical sense, still going to have to draw from existing frameworks, but integrate them and hybridize them in some way that creates, let's say, new hopes, new solutions. And then we also have to be prepared for new kinds of problems. But of course, there's plenty of ideas that we already have. The idea of a proper living wage, the idea of a proper universal health care, the idea of public institutions that exist according to public principles, for example. All of these are right now in contestation, and coronavirus has brought into focus just how important it is, the kind of fallacy that unskilled workers, or or the, the fallacy of the very concept itself, because it turns out that all those people who are dismissed as unskilled workers or low-paid workers are the very people that we're now depending upon to keep this big edifice going. So I think it's it's very easy to imagine what needs to happen next. And I think the coronavirus has been extraordinarily helpful in just bringing into focus some of the stark inequalities and just how uh, productive they are of risk in the first place. I totally agree. And I, it's very interesting how... Given the the neoliberal dismantling of unions and kind of the the general sort of loss of energy within the union movement, how the coronavirus has re-stimulated a kind of very clear class consciousness in terms of, oh, suddenly, you know, these workers, these essential workers, they're no longer cost who need to be eliminated. They're no longer the takers, right, uh, who poach off the creative energy of the elite entrepreneurial class, they're essential workers that are basically keeping the economy going. So there is a clear revaluation of, of the value of work and labor. And it'll be interesting to see, like, when we're two years down the road and hopefully past this shock, how much of that class consciousness sticks and how much mobilizing that's able to do for things like higher living, you know, higher wages, uh, living wages, even the idea of a universal income, which had been, at least in the United States, that was, you were a lunatic if you were talking about, you know, uh, a a universal income. Suddenly that's entering into the conversation as maybe an idea that we need to actually start considering. It's kind of moved into sort of the realm of, of legitimate discourse in a way it wasn't. Like Deleuze and Guattari say, it's a contingent history. Exactly, yes. I'd like to say thanks very much, Craig. This has been very interesting. It was fun. It was something to do in this era of shutdown. So um, thank you both for having me. Always great connecting with you. And uh, stay well, stay healthy, stay sane. Uh, Thank you very much, Craig. That was wonderful. Sane is unlikely, but to stay. Fair enough. (laughs) Two out of three ain't bad, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 